Well, good morning. Good to see you guys today. Shafia, a Pakistani Christian woman, knows what it is to suffer. Her persecution began when her brother, Rafi, stood up for Christians in their community. He publicly confronted some Muslims who had been tormenting Christian young women and was later murdered for it. Uh, In order to bring the killer to trial, Shafia's family had to fund the prosecution. After paying for part of the trial, they ran out of money and they were desperate for help. And a man in the community, a Muslim man named Masood, who seemed like their knight in shining armor, promised to help the family with their case. But he later forged Shafia's signature on a marriage certificate, making her his wife. After the village leaders pressured him to sign a divorce agreement, Masood was angry and he kidnapped Shafia, holding her captive. He did horrible things to her every day. Masood promised to stop torturing Shafia if she would deny Jesus and convert to Islam, but she refused, faithfully clinging to Christ. I share that story with you because it illustrates the reality that in our broken world, we see all kinds of injustice. People oppress others for a variety of reasons, whether it's, it's their beliefs, the color of their skin, their sexuality, social status, or any number of things. And maybe you've even experienced oppression firsthand, and if you have, I'm truly very, very sorry. No one wants to be taken advantage of. Nobody signs up for suffering, but when suffering comes, it hurts, it's frustrating, and we're tempted to take matters into our own hands. We're tempted to get even. The problem is God hasn't given us that freedom, and when we attempt to get even, we often make things worse. But that begs the question, what should we do when we suffer? What should we do when we suffer? What can we do? While we might not be able to eliminate injustice from our world or our own lives, thankfully God has provided us a way to honor him when we suffer. The question is, how do we do that? How do we honor God when we suffer? Turn with me to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. My name is Jeremiah Meadows, and I'm the community group's pastor here in Cyprus, and it's uh, my honor to get to share from the word with you today. If we haven't met yet, I'd love to meet you. Please come Find me after the service. I'd love to shake your hand and say hello. Or we can just wave if you're still a little nervous about COVID or whatnot. But we've been walking through James the past four weeks. And today we're wrapping up our series in James. And we're going to cover the first 11 verses of the chapter. And so I encourage you to go uh, this week and to study verses 12 through 20 for yourself. 
Uh, I hope you've been taking Johnny up on his challenge to dig into this during the week. Uh, If you haven't felt convicted enough by our time on Sundays, if you'll get into James on your own this week, that's sure to do the trick. Sure to do the trick. But yeah, this book, it's a heavy hitter. I don't, I don't know that it leaves us feeling rosy, but I hope it still uh, encourages us as we, as we look at these words from James. And as we walk through verses one through 11 of chapter five today, I believe we'll find out how we can suffer in a way that honors God. But let's uh, pray before we read the, the word this morning. Father, we come before you this morning um, well aware that things in our world and in our lives are not as they should be. Injustice and suffering is a part of our world and it's sadly and, and painfully a part of our own lives. And so we come before you needing to know what you have to say about all of this. And more importantly, we need to see you and we need to experience you. We need to encounter you as we open your word. And we trust that your spirit is here and that that is what you want this morning. That's what we want. And so we ask that you would guide our time. We pray that um, you would speak to us. I pray that my words would be your words this morning and that um, we, would, we would know you better today and we'd be able to to know how to walk with you better as a result of our time this morning. So we give this time to you in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're gonna read a few verses. We'll stop to talk about those and then read some more. So if you would, uh, look at verses one through six of James chapter five with me. James writes this, he says, "'Come now, you rich, weep and howl "'for the miseries that are coming upon you. "'Your riches have rotted, And I lost my page. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. In these verses, James is addressing a particular group of wicked, rich farmers directly. Later, he's going to address some poor Christians that were being oppressed by these farmers, and we'll get to that in verses 7 through 11. But in verse 1, he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. This is language that is typical uh, condemnation language of, of the Old Testament prophets. I'll give you one example. In Jeremiah 25, verse 34, it says, Wail, you shepherds, and cry out and roll in ashes, you lords of the flock, for the days of your slaughter and dispersion have come. In essence, James is telling these rich people, these these farmers, to mourn and brace themselves because their judgment is coming. 
And why is that? What have they done? He says, tells us a bunch of things in the next few verses, verses two through six. And their first fault, according to verses two and three, is that they have selfishly hoarded wealth. Selfishly hoarded. It says in verse three, plainly he writes, you have stored up treasure in the last days. They had set their hearts on money. They had made an idol of materialism and accumulation. It wasn't just that they had resources. That's not the problem. It was that their heart was set on these things and they were doing this in a very uh, idolistic way. And at this point, I just want to stop and say, I can't think of any culture in the world that's ever been guilty of that. <laughs> yeah, you read this and it just kind of sits. It makes, makes you stop for a second. But two problems arise from their selfish hoarding, according to these verses. First of all, everything they stored up, he says, is as good as gone, for it is earthly. It is not permanent. And secondly, these very things will serve as witnesses against them on their day of judgment. He says, they will be evidence against you. These wicked, rich farmers are condemned, awaiting judgment because of their selfish hoarding. But that's not all. According to verse 4, they have defrauded their workers, failing to pay them their daily wages. In James's day, let me give you a little bit of a cultural uh, window into what was going on. In James's day, there was a giant gap between the rich and poor. It wasn't much of a middle class. It was very, very wealthy, very, very poor in general. And the extremely wealthy landowners lived in opulence and they held all the power in society, all the power. And their workers on the, op, on the, on the opposite side were day laborers who were so poor that if they didn't get paid each day, they would not have food or water. That's the situation. And in striking language in verse four, James personifies their held back wages, these, these wages that they were supposed to be paid but were not. He personifies them and says that they are crying out against the rich and that these cries have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, which another way you could say that is the God of angel armies. They thought they were getting away with fraud but in reality, God was about to execute justice. That's what James is saying. And according to verse five, the third offense of the rich is that they have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. Instead of generously stewarding their resources to honor God by loving and caring for their neighbors and those in need, they had no regard for others, and they were spending everything that they had to satisfy their own desires. And then James saves the very worst for last. According to verse 6, by mistreating and taking advantage of the, for, the, of the poor, the rich have condemned and murdered the righteous person, he says. And the righteous here could have a double meaning. It, it likely describes them as both God's forgiven people and those who are innocent of the death sentence that the wealthy have laid on them. If you think about that, that I don't, it could be extreme language. It could also be very literal language because if you're defrauding people who are relying on their day, daily wages to be able to eat and drink, there could be people who are dying of starvation. 
But the poor did not resist. That's what he says in verse six. Instead of trying to get even, they didn't do that. And instead, following Jesus's command in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5, 38 through 42, they were turning the other cheek. They were seeking God's righteousness instead of seeking revenge. So in these first six verses of chapter five, James is condemning these wicked rich farmers for oppressing the poor. And by doing this, I believe James is actually encouraging the poor, these followers of Jesus who are being taken advantage of, he's encouraging them to not seek vengeance on their oppressors, but to believe and to know that Jesus will judge them. He will judge the wicked. And so if we want to honor God when we suffer, the first thing we must do is believe that Jesus will judge the wicked. To believe that Jesus really will judge those who do evil things. It may seem like people are getting away with evil, but they won't. In the end, Jesus will bring every wicked deed into account, and anyone who has not run to him for forgiveness, pleading the blood of Christ, will get what they deserve. The problem is that when we are watching or even worse, on the receiving end of injustice, it is so hard to believe that God is there and that he is going to do anything about it. It's so hard to believe that in the middle of it. One of my favorite passages in the entire Bible is in Exodus chapter two. In verses 23 and 24, we get a window into the heart of God, and I want you to listen to what it says there about God's response when his people suffer. Read this in verse 23 of Exodus 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue and slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob And then verse 25, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. So God heard, God remembered his covenant or his promise. God saw and God knew. Friends, these are four statements that tell me that God is intimately aware of every single injustice and every ounce of suffering, intimately aware of it. Jesus is coming soon, and on the day that he returns, the day of the Lord, he is going to bring perfect justice. He will right every wrong, every evil person, every evil deed will be taken care of. They will get what they deserve. Matthew 16, 27 says it this way, for the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. When we're wronged, we don't have to retaliate and take matters into our own hands because Jesus will take care of it. He will right every wrong. We can honor God when we suffer, and it starts by believing that Jesus really will judge the wicked. So James moves on in verses 7 and 11, through 11 to address the oppressed Christians, the poor who were being defrauded. And so let's look at those verses. 
7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Let me stop there. So in verse 7, you notice here he, he switches. He says, brothers. He addresses them as brothers. And that lets us know that he's switching uh, audiences direct audiences to Christians who were suffering at the hands of these wicked farmers. And what does he have to say to them? He says, be patient. Man, that's a tough word. Be patient, just write it out. Yes, he says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Be patient, Jesus is coming, is what James is saying. He's on the way, and then he gives them an example. He, he uses this analogy. He says, remember how the farmer has to wait for the early and the late rains before his crop is ready for harvest. And what he's saying is in due time, Jesus will come back just as crops become ready to harvest. As sure as we know that is a reality, we can know that Jesus is coming. And then in verse eight, James doubles down and he repeats the command. He says, you also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Take heart. Don't give up. Jesus will be here quicker than you know. And the fact that Jesus' return for this audience is meant to encourage them rather than to convict them or, 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 or you know, strike that dread and that fear in them reveals that these are not like the wicked farmers. These are followers of Jesus who can look to that day with great anticipation and hope. But James switches gears a bit in verse nine. Look at that with me. He says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Here's what James knows. He knows that enduring suffering takes a toll on anyone. When we are facing injustice, it's easy to grow weary. It's easy to get discouraged and bitter. And here's what, what happens. If we don't release all of that stuff, that difficulty, that pain in a healthy way to Jesus, what happens is we end up releasing it in an unhealthy way on the people around us by complaining, by nagging, or even worse, trying to get the best of them. We see this all the time. That's why you've heard the phrase, hurt people, hurt people. But to motivate us not to grumble, James tells us there are consequences. If we do, if we grumble, we will fall under Jesus' judgment. And we will have to answer for our own sin. Now, he's not talking about not making it into heaven, standing condemned in that sense. But he's saying, you're still going to have to give an answer for the way that you lived your life, what you said and what you did. But James gives two examples of patience in suffering in verses 10 
and 11. He says, first of all, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. And the prophets are an example of patience and suffering in two ways. First of all, they spoke in the name of the Lord. And what that means is that they called out the wickedness in those around them. They didn't just sit there and ignore it or, or worse, uh, okay it and, and give approval to it. They called it out. They called it out. And they would call those around them to turn to God in repentance, to quit doing what they were doing. So they would call a spade a spade. And secondly, they were often attacked verbally and physically. You go back and look at the prophets. Many of them were dealt all kinds of horrible things. But they didn't let that deter them from their calling. They remained steadfast. They clung to God and they continued to speak and live righteously. But the second example of patience and suffering James gives is Job. He says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And if you remember, snapshot of Job's story, he literally lost pretty much everything. He lost his family. He lost his livestock, his home. He even suffered like physical things in his own body. And the text of Job tells us that it was not because of anything that he did. He didn't sin. He didn't do anything. And this was not the judgment of God in his life. It was actually something entirely different. God was allowing him to go through this. He was allowing it. But despite all that he lost, despite all of his grief, all of his suffering, Job refused to curse God. Even when his own wife said, just curse God and die. Why are you putting yourself through this? Though he asked some presumptuous questions, I don't want to say he has a squeaky clean response. <laughs> what Job did do is he remained steadfast and he continued to worship and he continued to honor God through excruciating pain and searing loss. And James calls followers of Jesus to be patient and wait for Jesus to rescue them. That's what he's saying in these verses. So if you and I want to honor God when we suffer, we must be patient and wait for Jesus to rescue us. When we suffer, it is so natural to want to resist and make others pay for what they've done. But Jesus, or James reminds us that we don't have to live that way. And I don't know about you, but being patient might be the hardest thing in the world. For me, it's up there. It's like top three. Holding my tongue, which James has already addressed, that's probably number one. This might be a close second. Because patience is not natural. It's just not. And when I've been wronged, it feels next to impossible not to do everything I can to try to make it stop, even if that means turning around and hurting others. Patience is so hard. And James knows this, and yet he still calls us to be patient, and that's because Jesus is coming back to rescue us. And the return of Jesus is one of, is probably the most hope-stirring thing in all of the world to me. It might be the only reason why I haven't given up in a couple of seasons of my life. I hear some amens, and so I see head nods. 
It really is. And here's the, here's the reality. The gospel tells us that we can trust Jesus, that we can believe that he really will come and rescue us because Jesus was willing to suffer injustice himself. He was willing to be beaten and crucified, though he was the only person to ever live who was perfectly and 100% innocent. He was willing to go through that. And he sacrificed himself, dying in the, on the cross in our place and rose from the dead. If anyone would do that for us, why in the world would he not come back to rescue us? The cross and the empty grave give us every reason to believe that we can trust him, that he will not abandon us. So we can honor God when we suffer if we will be patient and wait for Jesus to rescue us. But let's look at verse 11 one more time. I wanna talk about one final way we can remain, uh, we can be patient, we can honor God as we suffer. Verse 11, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James tells these poor believers that what will help them be patient while they wait for Jesus is to trust God's good purpose and God's good character. To trust God's good purpose and God's good character. Like the prophets and Job before them, the oppressed poor had already experienced God's grace when they encountered Jesus. They had already tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Like Timothy captures in 2 Timothy 1.9, they could declare God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. They could be patient because they knew that God had good purposes for them and because he himself is good. He is compassionate and merciful. He cared about their suffering, and Jesus is going to mercifully deliver them out from it when he comes. So James encouraged them to remain steadfast by remembering the purposes and goodness of God. And if you and I want to honor God when we suffer, we have to remain steadfast and trust in our good God. That's the way we suffer well. That's the way we honor God when we suffer. When life hurts, we often start thinking all kinds of things. We can start thinking a bunch of things. Why is this happening to me? God must not care about me. If he did, he certainly wouldn't allow this. Does God even love me? Is he in control? I rattled all of those off that easily because they're things that have swum around in my brain and in my heart that I've had to bring before the Lord and recognize as lies. It is so easy to wonder and doubt when we're hurting. But at the end of the day, I would submit to you that each and every one of us has a choice to make and there are two options. Here are our options. Either we can look around us, we can examine our feeling and our observations, we can take all of those those things and then we can use them as the basis for our beliefs about God's character his purposes, and his thoughts and feelings about us. That's option one. 
Or option two, we can look to Jesus and God's word to understand his character, his purpose, his thoughts and feelings about us. And we can use that as the basis of what we believe about what is happening around us and to us. The first option, using all of our circumstances to interpret God, will leave us miserable, hopeless, and ultimately dead. The second option, allowing God's character purposes as demonstrated in the person and work of Jesus to define our circumstances and our feelings will lead us to joy, it will lead us to hope, and it will ultimately lead us to life himself, Jesus. This is the message of the gospel. And I beg you, allow what God says about who he is and allow what he has shown himself to be in Jesus to determine what you believe. Because we can honor God when we suffer, but we must remain steadfast and trust in our good God. I began our time this morning by telling you about Shafia, and I want to tell you the rest of the story. While she was held captive, she prayed to God constantly, reciting memorized psalms such as Psalm 23, 120, 121, believing that God would deliver her soon. Well, one day, about four months after Shafia had been kidnapped, Masood forgot to lock the door, and she escaped, and she made her way back home to her family. Though they were reunited, they were in a desperate situation. They had to borrow $217 from a brick kiln owner in order to file a case against Masood for what he had done. And to pay back the loan, the entire family, all 11 family members, worked 12 hours a day earning only $3 for every 1,000 bricks that they made by hand. This just sounds like completely different than our reality, does it not? But there are people who are living in these kinds of situations right now around our world. While working in that factory, Shafia read in the Bible that we should forgive our persecutors, and she decided to forgive Masood and the man who had killed her brothers. And the Voice of the Martyrs, a ministry dedicated to assisting the persecuted church, found out about their story, and they paid off the remainder of that debt. And now Shafia plans to become a doctor, and her family holds prayer meetings for friends and family members in their home as they desire to help others come to know Jesus. Suffering is not a joke. It's a harsh reality in our broken world. But thankfully, we know by the cross and the empty grave that Jesus is bigger and stronger than any suffering we could ever face. He's bigger, he's stronger, And he is coming back for us. If we will believe that Jesus will judge the wicked, if we will be patient and wait for Jesus to rescue us, and we will remain steadfast and trust in our good God, we can honor God when we suffer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your son. We're grateful that Jesus came, that he would come to this place. Who would sign up for that? But he did, and he entered into our brokenness, and he entered into our suffering. Suffering himself, ultimately laying down his life. 
And my prayer today is that each and every one of us would look to the cross, we would look to the empty tomb as proof that Jesus is more than powerful enough to carry us through, to enable us to to have hope and joy and persevere even when life is at its worst. Help us to trust you. Give us the grace to trust you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna close our service the way that we do pretty much every week. We're gonna open up the front for a time of prayer. And so I'm gonna invite our folks who are helping with that to go ahead and come on forward. But uh, maybe you're going through a really difficult time right now. We would love to pray with you. Or maybe you wanna pray for someone else that's going through a difficult time. Whatever the reason is, we invite you to come forward and to be prayed over, to be prayed with. Um, Sometimes that makes all the difference in the world when we're going through hardship. So the front is open, we invite you to come.